0: Okay, hey, ladies and gentlemen, is our. Uh Honour to invite Dr. Sarah Mackay onto the podcast. Uh, Dr. Sarah Mackay is a neuroscientist who is also the director of the Neuroscience Academy. And uh, she's also written um, a very intriguing and insightful book called The Women's Brain Book, which uh, in the UK is called uh, Demystifying the Female Brain. And it is a good exploration of health, hormones and happiness. So uh, we welcome you to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Bright and early uh, from Sydney.
1: Thank you. And, and it is so great to talk to people from the UK because they just pronounced my name correctly without having to ask.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've got a none keen ear for American,
1: it. Yeah, none of this Americanized McKay. So thank you. Ah. <laughs> You've made my day already. You're,
0: right. oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I'm glad I got that right because I had to make sure, you know, I've heard you say your name a few times. So, okay, that's how it's said. Great. No, let's on. get that right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a
1: Scottish. It, the Scottish don't say McKay.
0: Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So yeah lovely to have you thanks for joining us and oh, um, so we much. thought it would be a good good place to start to uh, talk to you about your journey into neuroscience you know what got you actually hooked on uh, exploring the brain and uh, wanting to excel in this field
1: yeah that is um, a really interesting question because it's been a while now um, I was mm. I was one of those I kids who loved school and I loved all kinds of science biology chemistry geography I was just totally loved learning um which always makes me sound like a massive nerd maybe I was but I also had like a bunch of great mates boys and girls so I had a very happy <laughs> happy happy school life headed off to university and was doing psychology in my first year at Canterbury University in Christchurch and there really was a moment when I went oh my god um well, first there was kind of two moments a dual moment it was in a lecture where we were learning about synapses, the the kind of point-to-point connection between two neurons or brain cells. And they would, you know, the lecturer was just doing the basic kind of description that anyone who's done a biology class would be familiar with about calcium influx and the vesicles and the neurotransmitters. And I was like, this is so cool. This is like the <laughs> biology of psychology. Wow. Oh. I was captivated. Oh. And then that lecturer also recommended that we read New book back way back then, which is aging me. Um, this is back in the early '90s, guys. Um, <laughs> a, a book called "The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat" by mm. a neurologist Oliver Sacks. Which um, I think when that book came out, it really sort of inspired a whole generation of neuroscientists. Um, mm. Those of us who were reading it way back then, and th- and, and and Oliver Sacks. For those who don't know, um, was was a neurologist and it was also an incredible storyteller and wrote these really curious case studies up of the strange things that happen to people's minds and behavior when things go wrong with their brain. And these kind of two ideas coming together just ca- utterly captivated me because when I was in school, biology didn't involve any, I didn't, I'd didn't. i never heard about neurons and synapses really until I, mean, I was in that first year of university. And back then in the early nineties, neuroscience was a brand new discipline within the universities and actually another university down the road from where I lived at Otago University in Dunedin about four hours south of where I grew up in Christchurch had had just put together a a brand new degree discipline in in neuroscience and they pulled the the brain or neuro components from lots of different Hmm. disciplines together and so they were offering that as a new degree and I went well that's that's me and so I transferred Hmm. universities and off I went and been on that path ever ever since in various kinds of forms um and it's still i i remember that like oh my god this is a really cool moment mm. and that was in 1993 mm. and i still have that that experience now when i like pick up even i still like read neuroscience textbooks and pick up i love that and, just go this is so cool it still as yeah. it's because it's such a broad deep subject that's yeah. kept, mm-hmm. me, kept me captivated all
2: these have, years have you seen it obviously have you seen it change over the years as 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 new discoveries happen or is it similar to how you started
1: it's really um there's, not, there's there's been few like giant big leaps forward it doesn't really work mm. like that it's just these okay. tiny little little steps and growing understanding and new ways of kind of thinking and talking and describing. I mean, mm. the synapses still work in the same way, but now we've got this incredibly detailed understanding of kind of, you know, that we can zoom in and take a look at what's going on and look at all the protein folding and the genes that change when you're, you know, when when a, when a synapse is activated. And, mm. and, and it's funny because I just bought Um, the main neuroscience textbook that we all all use everywhere, um, Kandel, Jessel and Schwartz. And I just bought the sixth edition, which came out about a month ago. And I've also got the third edition, which I bought in my first year of my neuroscience degree. And so that was really cool to kind of see like these 30 years and chapter summaries. Yeah. and And to see how that's grown and changed. And some things are similar, but Mostly it's just that their knowledge has expanded and grown rather than changed completely.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's really cool to see, like, in a really super nerdy yeah. way, some of the stuff that's changed. <laughs> I yeah, love that.
0: Is, so, yeah, that's... Um, Cause that's what's fascinating about uh, when you wrote your book, and then you know pretty much every chapter in your book where you're talking about whether it's from conception through puberty to pregnancy and motherhood menopause you're like we don't know a lot about women's health, <laughs> and yeah, it's amazing yeah. that you know just um, how much how far we still have to go in that sense as well yeah,
1: and I think um you know some people say that see that as a as a shame and in some respects it's a shame but um, personally, for me, I just think that, wow, there's going to be lots of new stuff to learn about as we're going along over the next yeah. few years. Because I just am, have always been deeply driven by that love of learning and finding out new information. Perhaps I'm, I was told yeah. last night that maybe I've I'm now got a bit too much information and I need to start thinking <laughs> about some other things. But um, certainly for me, one of the changes I've seen is that that obsession has become less personal. And I just about like me and a few other people have been really into it. For a long time, I have started to see other people outside of academia become really interested and curious about neuroscience. I mean, people mm. have always been interested in the brain and the mind and behaviour and psychology has been around for a very, very long time and perhaps in some ways offers people more than neuroscience. But um, mm. I've, I've started to see that, that real growing interest and enthusiasm from other mm. people wanting to, to learn yeah we, cool. yeah, we certainly are. Yeah.
2: We're we're not in the scientific field, but we certainly love neuroscience and we're fascinated by everything and how we can incorporate it into mm. what we do as well. So it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, I'd say so, because I think it. For me, it kind of helped make a lot of things make sense in terms of why we might do things the way we do or how we do things Mm. the way we do, especially when it comes to a lot of like, you know, psychological advice or philosophy or Mm. things like that. It's like, for example, like ways of life that work for people. You know, everybody's talking about, you know, having, say, for example, just like social connection and things like that. And then Mm. it was like, okay, well, why is that so important to us? Um, And neuroscience, I felt like really helped. nail that down for us in terms of what it actually does for the brain. And since the brain is kind of like the center of our consciousness and mm. how we perceive life it's like, okay, well, this, this is, this is really interesting to see it through this mm. lens and what else can it offer us? And, um, mm. and yeah, and you, in your view, um, what do you think it can offer us to understand, um, like say the deep health model of like, Uh, social existential life as well even Mm. physical mental health Um, where do you think neuroscience can color um, our way of our way of life so we can actually live it better
1: yeah that's that's a really good question and I think it probably does what you suggested at the beginning there is that it gives you a bit of a why and some of these ideas Mm. we've known (laughs) we know that you should eat healthy food (laughs) Mm. and we know we should Get more sleep and we know we should reduce stress and we've been told a lot of that for a really long time and i suppose a lot of scientific disciplines essentially kind of provide the evidence backing that up and then give us the why why mm-hmm. is sleep so important well we still don't understand everything about yeah. why we need sleep like why did we evolve to need it it seems like a bit of a waste of time um, yeah. but what a lot of the disciplines do in neuroscience i suppose sitting in there gives us some insights into the why and Mm. that can be really interesting and can reinforce a lot of ideas and other times can give us some completely new insights that we didn't we didn't know that can um, support ideas about health and well-being or sometimes counteract them and that's Mm. what's interesting for me what I'm starting to see now is that the the, like you use the word color and I think that's such a lovely way to to think about it and i suppose i was going to say for me it helps connect the dots between ideas mm-hmm. um mm. it's, it's co- connecting the dots and coloring them and i'm sure we can't have a nice analogy between us all here yeah but yeah, for yeah. Me that's that's what it does it just kind of provides a bit more oomph behind an idea um mm. and i think when we um, neuroscience can often sort of demystify and depersonalize as well mm concepts that we think oh that's just that's just me and how i think and then we and so often i think it's just human nature um mm. to understand brain and behavior reminds us and so many people have forgotten this we're really just animals that evolved on the planet along with everything else my yeah. lungs my dog asleep on the floor and the birds that are flying around outside my window we're we're, we're essentially like that and in some ways our behaviors can be you know reasonably predictable it's i have mm. um young teen. I've got two boys who are 11 and 13 and the more and more and more I've learned about the teenage brain and credit so much credit for that must go to Sarah Jane Blakemore, who's in the UK she's in Cambridge now who's Mm. really kind of pioneered the neuroscience of adolescence Um, and the more and more I learn about the teenage brain um, I can just see these behaviors that some people might think oh gosh they're selfish or teenagers are grumpy or they do this and i'm like it is so predictable it is so developmentally normal um mm. and so for me personally it gives me some really great insights that enable me as a parent to be curious and and not judgmental and that's really mm. useful my son is not yeah. at all interested in hearing about neuroscience because that's what mum does mm. they're entirely yeah. uninteresting and very deeply uncalled yeah and it is very uncalled yeah. to say uncalled Yes. Yeah, I
0: don't know what it is. <laughs> is that, so that's that's him venturing into finding his own territory, right? He's, uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Away from, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's highly it developmentally normal. <laughs> I was going to say if it helps
2: <laughs> yeah. mum to understand him, my son's eleven as well. If it helps mum to understand him, then I think that helps um, us to to become better parents in a way, right? If we have a bit yeah. of understanding behind it and how what they're going through with the, with their brain chemistry. That's, uh, it's, that's valuable information, and I, I need to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: As, um, and, and that kind of leads me to the, um, there's a couple of things there, but the first one is understanding like a good model to use to kind of look at, um, look at the nervous system, look at the brain, because it's clearly, you know, it's potentially the most complex thing we've ever encountered in the world, and it resides right in our skull, mm-hmm. and we're learning so much about it and realizing at the same time we don't know anything about it mm. while we learn more and more about it. And so the, the complexity of it, what's a good, like, uh, so I've seen the way you've described it, which is the, the top down, bottom mm. up, outside mm. in model to help mm. us understand mm. what is influencing our brain and our nervous mm. system. Um, th- I, I love it and it'd be great if you mm. could just uh, kind of break it down for us so you, people can understand what it is that's actually influencing the brain because it's not just genetics, it's not just biology, mm. there's plenty of things going on
1: yeah there are plenty of things going on, and any <laughs> any any aspect of brain that you can think about from sleep to teenagers being grumpy to risk for Alzheimer's disease to mm. just any kind of question you want to frame in terms of the brain once you start digging into the research it gets just utterly utterly complex. Mm. <clears throat> and so this bottom-up outside and top-down model that you're referring to is based on, um, I must give credit to the biopsychosocial model, which is really a conceptual model of thinking about health and well-being and psychology, whereby there's a biophysiological component, a, a social component, and a psychological component. But I just think biopsychosocial sort of sounds clinical and really doesn't, doesn't have the brain in the centre. So thinking about the utter complexity of anything brain and that model I started talking about put the brain in the middle and I, and it's very visual for me um, mm. when I'm when I'm describing it and if I was to I could draw it if this wasn't a podcast or show you a picture. Mm. But essentially the brain is in the middle and it's receiving a constant stream of data from and in conversation with our bottom-up biology and everything within our bottom-up biology includes you know our genes to our hormones to our immune mm. system to parts of the brain that are constantly monitoring you know our our pH and our heart rate and core body temperature and not only is it receiving a constant stream of data from our body but it's also in conversation back with because of course we have a nervous system which extends you know to the tips of our fingers and toes controlling our muscles and our internal organs so there's everything biological that is influencing the brain and as I kind of say providing data input to the brain for those who prefer more of a hardware software model but yeah. our brains and nervous systems evolved, not really to think. That's one of the last things that i have mastered. And one of the hardest things for us to master as well, I believe, is thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, our brains evolved to move us through the natural world and to regulate that body as we're going in search of whatever's out there that we want to, to move towards or away from. And so our brains had to evolve then to receive input, to receive this data stream from the outside world, primarily through our eyes, but also our ears and as we breathe. And what's out there in the natural world, well, it's mm. obviously the, the environment in which we live and the light dark cycle, but there's also all of the other people because we these these social beings, humans, so much of our behavior comes about from interactions and expectations and past memories and future events with other people. Yeah. Um, so there's the outside in data stream, and that also includes, you know, you know, scrolling through the news feed or whatever. Um, yeah. and then finally we've got top down, which is really, you know, our memory of lived experiences, our thoughts, our expectations, our belief systems. And these bottom-up, outside in and top-down data streams are in constant conversation and mm. constantly coalescing and influencing each other. Um, to create any particular state or thought or emotion. It's never just one. It's always a combination of them all. Mm. And so um, the brain kind of almost provides this point via which they can interact, via which our body interacts with the outside world or our top-down thoughts can influence our our physiology and so on and so on. So I just always place the brain in the middle and whenever I kind of come back to people think right well let's talk about go back to the teenage brain why why are teenagers um, so self-obsessed and so self-conscious and we can think well what's going on people always just want to fall back on hormones Mm. well sure I mean hormones of course are a really large part of puberty and the changes that take place all of us have been through it we all know you know what it was like Huge. But you're in their entire social world has changed because often they've moved mm. from primary school to high school. Yeah. Their social brain is going yeah. through a big phase of development and requires social connections. It's almost going out and seeking that. And really, teenagers need to not be only interacting with mum and dad. They need to be mm. interacting with this broader social world. So there's that outside and input. And then of course there's that top down. Like teenagers, of course, are thinking about what are other people thinking about me. Mm-hmm. Every one yeah. of them is thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> they're very self-conscious because they're developing that next phase of theory of mind and understanding what other people are thinking. So they're always thinking everyone else is thinking about them, but of course every teenager's <laughs> think about themselves. So you know, we've got these bottom yeah. up, outside, and then top down, they've just introduced three ideas already. To, to, to kind of consider if we think about even teenage brain development. Yeah. So um, that's that's sort of how, how the model works. And I just come back to it time and time again whenever I'm chatting about the brain because it just is, is a really useful framework. And it's a useful framework. I hope that anyone listening to this will take forward um, when they've got a question, they want to think about or they read mm-hmm. something or they want to go and research something mm-hmm. that it just enables you to kind of break down the complexity a little bit, gives you a bit of a framework. Mm. Definitely. On.
0: Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It's super helpful. Because, really helpful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's worth realizing that it's not just... Um, it's not just one thing It's like if some because you mm. always hit like you'll see headlines because neuroscience I feel like is becoming a bigger thing in uh, mm. in uh, pop, uh, yeah. like mm. not just popular science but in conventional wisdom and so you know it's something that I'll bring up maybe later on but we used to say talking about dopamine and dopamine this and dopamine fasting mm. and ah. <laughs> you know for example which uh, but then and uh, so you have to consider actually you know like, like it, scrap the headline what's a good way of looking yeah. at it and then yeah, yeah, <laughs> looking yeah. at it from really
2: lovely way from of
1: looking that, at
0: it. it. Yeah, yeah, It's and
1: yeah, hu- it's and we're so as humans, we're not walking around with these brains inside a body, and and that's it. And I think I, I sometimes wonder if the world of sort of self-help and well-being, if, if it's, it encourages us us to spend so much time only listening to that bottom-up data stream, mm. that we we spend so much time navel gazing, or you know, when we talk about women's health, ovary gazing, that mm. that the only it's encouraged us to be quite sort of lonely and isolated in a way, and that we're only kind of mm. thinking about the body. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have <clears throat> we, you know, everything is contextual. So many of our social interactions influence our physiology. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, so if we keep coming back to this model, we just, it also reminds us to keep all these other things in play um, mm. instead mm. of just solely focusing on that bottom up data stream. I think that's
2: so helpful as a mother for sure. When you're when you're thinking about your children, I think it's really helpful to think of it with all those different factors because it's very easy to focus in on one thing. And actually Mm. when you sit back and think about all those different things, that's super helpful. Also as a as a person, you're going through, like I think you said in your book, that many mothers, as their children reach puberty, they're starting to head into perimenopause and there's this clash. (laughs) Yeah. And when you can sit back and think about all those different factors, I think that's so yeah. helpful. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not it just there's these
1: there's these two sets of hormones which are trying to sort of fighting yeah. it out. Um, yeah. It's it just enables you to, oh, and and having all this information for me, I don't know whether it's useful for anyone else or they're still confused. Just gives it, it just enables me to sit back and look. And remove Huge. all of the judgment and the emotion yes. from it and just sit yes. back and look just passionately at what may be going on and what what can we do. So the, the the great example I always give about my teenage son is sorry, I'm just getting some feedback. Can you hear that? I could just hear my own voice. Yeah, it's got um, sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. Um is, you know his drive to be with his friends and and yeah. and literally it is a drive it is a motivation it's a need in him mm. he called me on the phone the other day as he always does and he's coming home from school because it's about a kilometer walk from the bus bless him um wow. to walk from the bus home
0: mm. and he's said, can you
1: pick me up and i'm like okay darling because he always knows i'm around in the afternoon so i'm gonna pick yeah. him up he gets in the car and he how was your day uh, <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> and that's uh, fine he just wants to chill. I let, let him. He comes home. has yeah. something to eat. goes upstairs. He smashes like, out about 10 Wheat Bits in an afternoon. After having 12 for breakfast, <laughs> he lives on Wheat, wheat Bits. Wow. Um, comes That's downstairs. Fantastic. He's changed. He's got a rugby ball under his arm. He says, oh, I'm going to meet my mates at the Oval, which is a uh, kilometre and a half walk in the opposite direction. I'm like, do you want me to drop you off?" He's like, no. <laughs> He's got the energy suddenly to walk um, yep. because the drive – is so strong there was not a lot of drive to come home to mum except for the fact that I would help him get there but he had this strong drive and instead of going well isn't he selfish I'm like that is so developmentally normal and interesting because I can see the drop the actual drive to be with his mates is so strong it overcomes any tiredness that he was feeling earlier and that's just mean I can remove any judgment and, and sort of storytelling in my own head and go that's really cool because he's behaving as he should
0: (laughs) yeah and that's incredibly it's it's incredibly useful as well and that's like you know that's busting some misconceptions as well It's just just one Mm. of the things i wanted to ask you about which was through the lifespan especially through the female lifespan there's Mm. a bunch of things that people might believe which isn't necessarily true and some of like the common misconceptions that you might have come across that uh, you know are worth to um Basically obliterate and just throw them, mm-hmm. out the, uh, throw them out the window. So from like you know you're talking about teenage years there, for example, which is yeah for sure. Um, I can think of, I can remember times of my behaviour, thinking I'm glad my parents had the patience with me, and uh, and then going into um, later life stages like you know, pregnancy, motherhood, and then further down the line into menopause. Mm. Like we can tackle each area. Um, mm. As you see fit, but like, what are the what are the common what are the common misconceptions that people have, which is kind of hindering their ability to enjoy life and <laughs> uh, to the fullest, which mm. uh, you think is worth worth them knowing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's probably if we we could we could kind of look at a few different phases because there are lots of and and it'll just mm. give us a chance to kind of talk mm. about this model a little bit more too. Yeah, yeah. So I think if we start at puberty because we're already kind of there talking about teenagers. Because that's really when we start talking a lot about the bottom-up signalling and the and the hormones, mm-hmm. and and an interesting study that I came across in my research. And I so when I went in to write this book, I know a bit about brain plasticity during development and a little bit about ageing, and I didn't know anything about hormones or neuroendocrinology. But I know lots of people to, to ask the questions of. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So so often the journey of writing the book and doing the research was going oh well wow, this is interesting isn't it. And I, I, I had a, for me, it was just joyful learning, yeah. learning new things. But the, the puberty one was interesting because, again, we have a tendency to blame hormones when things go wrong, <clears throat> particularly in women. We never talk about all of the great things hormones do. We just blame them for, typically for negative mood. And, and longitudinal studies are always really interesting because they typically involve really large cohorts of people who are studied in a great amount of detail as they, sort of track through their lifespan and one is uh, there's an Australian longitudinal study of childhood which is looking at the development of children from you know sort of four or five all the way through to their late teenage years and they study every aspect of these kids lives and they provide a real rich sort of literature of research and in these kids they were looking at the onset of puberty the age of onset of puberty mm. and the development of mental health dis- disorders because typically we do start to see the emergence of particularly anxiety and depression in those early teenage years. And that's also when we start to see a bit of a gender divide as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so often parents go, oh, well, they're moody because of their hormones. But what was interesting was if we looked at kids entering puberty at different ages, and if we looked at girls entering puberty early but normal, so younger than their friends but still on the normal scale there, um, say they were starting to develop breasts at 9, 10 and got their periods at maybe 10-ish, mm. which is early but it's still normal, those girls are far more vulnerable to go on to develop mental health problems. It's not guaranteed at, by any stretch of the imagination, but they're more vulnerable, they're more at risk than a girl who enters puberty at the same age as her the majority of her friendship group yes. yeah, or the girl who enters slightly later. Um, but boys are a little bit different because boys who enter puberty slightly ahead of their friends they get taller and hairier and more muscly, and they actually rise in social stature in their friendship group, which in a sense protects them and makes mm. them a little less vulnerable and a bit more resilient, versus that little guy. And we all had, we all remember them from, from high school, that the guy the little guy who didn't grow until he was about 15 or 16, and he's far more vulnerable. So, in fact, what we were seeing was children experiencing pubertal hormones for the first time which kickstarts all of the, the physical body changes, but also kickstarts the, the trajectory of adolescent brain development. But we're seeing yeah. that the what was the determinant was the children's perception of themselves in comparison to their friendship group. Yeah. So it was actually the outside-in signal was a big, big part of that. It wasn't just Huge. pubertal yeah. hormones. It's, hey, what's happening to me and my body in relationship to all of my friends? It's almost like that comparison that each yeah. child makes was it was a was a big part of that and we know that a large part of any anxiety or depression risk is as is, is, you know as, as a social connection or disconnection component mm. so i thought that was yeah. really really interesting yeah. um and that sort of um idea did play out at a lot of other points during the lifespan where we might pms was one of the big ones that blew my mind this idea that mm. um, that's a purely hormonal issue, right? And I mm-hmm. went into doing the research on the menstrual cycle. And let's look at how the brain changes over the course of a month in a healthy cycling woman. Mm. Um, does it do our thoughts, does, that, does it impact cognition, this, mo- this monthly hormonal yeah. cycling? Does it impact emotions? And, I, and the, there's actually a substantial amount of research in this space. So that was pretty cool, because lots of the time, I would go in and ask questions. And there would be not a ton of research. Um, but in terms of the, you know, we've all, you know, 50% of the population has kind of got this monthly neuroscience experiment going on. Yeah. Um, So that was a really interesting, that was really interesting to dig into that, and I was heartened, uh, my little little feminist beating heart was heartened to see that in terms of cognition, so what we might think about is all of our thinking skills, planning and judgment and decision-making and reasoning and attention and problem-solving, were not influenced over the course of the month. There weren't any, there was no right. very little data at all saying you're better at paying attention or you're worse at making decisions or you're better at thinking at this time of the month or another, which is good for those of us who, you know, hold down jobs and we're educated mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we managed to kind of get through despite the fact you <laughs> they have a monthly cycle. So, <laughs> woohoo for that. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm a I, Kiwi obviously, and um, was was kind of unaware. I don't know whether it's my Kiwi upbringing was kind of unaware <laughs> the last few years that apparently being a female was a hindrance to life. I don't know. We've done yeah. Kiwi Kiwi woman do all right. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that's not that's not that was my that's my personal experience. I must say the the a lot of the discussions recently, I'm like. Like apparently there's women women in STEM is an is a, is a issue that lots of women grapple with. It's like I hadn't noticed, but mm. <laughs> that's my personal experience. I have to be careful to assume everyone's has been, been similar. But anyway, so then I started digging into the research about emotions. I thought, well, women are very emotional and hormonal mm. apparently. Mm. Although as a Kiwi, I was not really brought up with that story, let me say. It was not part mm. of conversations growing up in my family. In my, I went to an all-girls school, was taught by nuns nuns are you know yeah. social justice warriors it was like feminist boot camp you know go and do anything I wasn't brought up with any of that you're very emotional you know, t- you know at particular times in the month and we were fragile mm. we were not I was not brought up that way so that has colored some of my attitudes I have to say but the research on emotions was was kind of similar in that when we look at very Specific measures of particular emotions. There was mm-hmm. the data was not showing any clear variation based on hormonal status or day of the month, which is counter mm-hmm. to many women's lived experiences. And I thought, well, I better check out PMS. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that apparently nice. is a thing. Um, again, was not a thing when I was growing up. But um I well, so the first thing I'd always do when I was doing research was like, I better go and check the stats on how many women experience PMS. I thought, that'll be straightforward. It was not straightforward. I came across a meta-analysis and I try always to, you know, look to the top of the pyramid of research Mm. and a meta-analysis, for those who don't know, I'm probably teaching you guys to suck eggs, is when you pull together data from lots of different research studies that have been done and there's power in numbers. The more data you've got, the more data points you've got, the the more, you know, certainty you can make a claim. And that the... um, PMS data was fascinating because it was looking at it globally. um, But the rates varied. I couldn't believe how much the rates varied of women putting their hands up saying, I suffer from PMS, depending where in the world you live. So at one end of the scale, we have French women. And there was about 10% of them put their hands up and say, I I suffer PMS. Okay, Uh, uh, Spanish women... so, you know just over border from france it was more about 30 percent right. and then you could go into some parts of the world um say asia japan um and it might be about 50 percent of women and then you can go the the 95 percent of women put up their hands saying i suffer from pms in iran so we have like somewhere between like 10 and 95 percent mm. of women putting up their hands to say i suffer from pms wow. but it depends of the world you live what the average rate was. And I was like, this is nuts. So it averaged out at about 50%, but it varied between 10 and 95, depending where in the yeah. world you live. And I was oh, like, oh, I for that being kind of hormonal? And then of course that appealed to me, growing up in this kind of Kiwi culture where we were probably like the French woman perhaps. Um, so I turned yeah. to, funnily enough, um, research partly done by a, a, a Kiwi, um, also called Sarah, Sarah Romans, who's a woman health, women's health psychiatrist in partnership with a group in Canada. And they were also curious about this. And Sarah Romans in particular is a women's health psychiatrist. So she sees a lot of, she sees a, a very narrow subset of women, obviously, who had psychiatric needs. Um, but she said there was this constant leaning on hormones, hormones, hormones as being the, you know, the kind of the cause for any Why? emotional ill. Uh, yeah. And um so they they designed a really clever study. I'm kind of going on a bit here. That's <laughs> I great. should try I and, and so tell the story a bit quicker. <laughs> um but I was so I was so fascinated by it. Yeah. So they, they they designed this uh, mood and daily life study. So it was like an app on your phone and it popped up saying, hey, as a reminder, write down the, you know, record the following. And it was like, let's look at mood, and it gave a a, a positive and a negative valence of mood and neutral, which is really important because often when women ask to record mood, they might be given like sad, angry, frustrated and happy. And there might be like way more negative moods to choose from and maybe just Mm. one positive. So it gave equal numbers of positive, negative and um, emotional kind of the scale to pick from, which is pretty important. Um, Asked for, you know, how stressed out are you feeling? Um, Are you feeling physically well or not? Are you feeling um, socially supported? What's that kind of social connection like in your life? What day of the month are you on? And they gathered all that data, and telling me the women were not told it was a study on PMS. It was just this mood and daily life study. And when all of the data was crunched and they looked at um, all, the, it, there was no clear correlation between hormone day, hormonal status, or day of the month and mood. In fact, wow. the stronger prediction of mood was um, how stressed you felt, your physical health, but the strongest predictor was actually social support. I was going to say um, outside, yeah. Yeah, it was, outside, it was that outside. It was that outsider. Now there were some mm. women. So this is again as an average. And all studies look at averages, and there's always outliers. There were about sort of one to two in twenty women. So kind of in that five to ten percent range that did show clear variation of mood influenced by hormonal status, but ninety percent didn't. So the women in the study were more like French women. Um, but it's interesting because when the study is done, saying so we're looking at PMS, the the data shifts because it's almost as if we were priming women. To expect that we were looking for data about negative emotions in that pre-period mm. phase, which I think is really, really, really interesting. Mm. Um, now, this is not to say that any woman's lived experience of feeling cranky at this time of the month isn't isn't real, but it, it's what we are attributing that to, and the oh meaning that we are making God. of that based mm. on the stories that we believe or the messaging that we've we've taken on board, or even perhaps tuning in our brain to a signal that we may have been taught to ignore not really Mm. sure what's going on here but a lot of the feminist narrative and literature around this would say that women have kind of being good women um, and ignoring their emotions and then there's a few days of the month where we we feel empowered and able to kind of release um, Mm. because we've been told it's okay to be cranky bitches at that point in time and interestingly other analyses that have been done do tend to show that in countries where there's less gender equality rates of pms are are slightly higher so i think that's a really interesting way to think about this not to say hormones aren't important Mm -hmm. or social support is the the reason for pms just to say there's bottom up there's outside and there's top-down influences at play even for something that we might think is a as a hormonal issue so i think that's so uh, that that just totally blew Mm. my mind and actually had similarities to the pubertal study of kids, you know, it's outside in and top down and bottom up Mm. are all coalescing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um, well, it just made me think like how I got into finding out more about this stuff essentially it was i've got a postmenopausal client i had a client who now is approaching menopause and curious about this stuff and then i had one who was in menopause and then over the last couple of years um i've had friends who have given birth to their first child so they've spent time being pregnant and now are mothers and um and i just realized i got a real blind spot around female health is like I coach people to become physically healthier and better, uh, mm. but this was one area where if push came to shove, and I had to make some, you know, base some advice on what I tell them to do based on their own um, their own health, uh, their own female health perspective. It was like, okay, I don't really know much here, and. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah it's like so it was good so somehow the universe just kind of spoke out. I really have no idea how I came across your profile on Instagram Sarah I just can't remember I've been trying to piece it together I was just like I don't actually know how it happened but I ended up stumbling across it it was just perfect timing because hmm. you you wrote the book and um and the point there is that it's super useful for us uh, for for me as a as a as a man to understand what's going on there mm. um not just because i coach women but also because i have women in my life as well and yeah. so that understanding and it's like just that constant um what, what's been said plenty of times before is like, oh you know stay away from the must be pms or something like that it's like, okay <laughs> it's that time in the month yeah maybe it's your fault yeah exactly it's like you know maybe it's maybe it's my fault but it's like what 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 uh what's interesting there is like when you look at it from that outside in uh, top yeah. down, bottom up model is like, well, okay, there is potentially, and like, am I potentially contributing to this as well, or is it yeah. that you're in a stressful mm-hmm. situation, you actually need my support, you actually need me to lean in, not to back away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think yeah, things and I,
1: like that. Of course, you're such a lovely bloke. <laughs> <laughs> I always say this. Perhaps some people are oh, men they don't want to talk about women's health and they feel ostracised. And you're like, L- you've leaned into it. Um, yeah, so for me. I always say it's a book for women and the men who love them work with them so good on good on you for like wanting to learn all of this and I think um there's so there's so many other uh, um situations where we blame and we tend to blame hormones when things go wrong we don't think about the wonderful things they do we can talk about pregnancy and how amazing estrogen is um but um other other people so often were at every point in the lifespan when I was looking at the research were the, the kind of the best thing or the worst thing for, for a brain. They mm. were the the main sort of data input or the, 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 the structural support that we can provide was with other people, um, which is really great because we can do something about that. We, we might not mm. necessarily be able to manipulate someone's hormones to make them feel better or worse. But as people, we can go in and make an enormous difference. Mm. So I think that that's, that gives people so much agency. Do you, you know, think women's a positive change?
2: I was gonna ask, do you think women can almost egg each other on with certain symptoms and things like that? You know, like like male partners and it's like, oh, it's her time of the month. Do so you think women could also yeah. essentially, oh I'm cranky today, yes, yeah, so am I, oh you're on, you're yeah. on. You know what I mean? So I
1: think and look, I think <laughs> that storytelling and the meaning we make as, a, as, a, as, as a important data point as any mm-hmm. um, in terms of, our, you know, our brain deciding when well, our brain doesn't decide things, it's being a bit dualist, but, uh, but, but, but essentially any state that we find ourselves in is um, the meaning that we're making of that is as important. Um, and, and we saw that, you know, the study where, let's do, we'll tell the woman that the study's about PMS versus not, the data that, you know, that that influences the outcome. Yeah. Mm. Because part yeah. of any any health outcome is based on our expectation and how we feel about that. Mm. <laughs> um, yes. And pregnancy, if you just indulge me to talk about pregnancy and the stories that we used yeah, to hear yeah. later Please. on, is, um, there's some really cool research that's come out recently around the human maternal brain, which has been great, because we know quite a bit about the maternal brain, the brains of females as they go through pregnancy, and, and the little scurrying animals of the lab. Um, and interestingly, the, the the experience of most female mammals, humans aside, is that pregnancy makes you smarter. It improves your cognition. you you know you're better at paying attention. You make better decisions. You have much better memory. You build mm. in a lot of resilience, and that lasts for the lifespan. So in fact, mothers um outside of humans typically well and humans too as it turns out typically like sort of live longer healthier more resilient lives us humans read books on what to expect when we're expecting yeah therefore we have a lot of expectation in there there's a lot of storytelling there's a lot of meaning making around motherhood and that's you know an enormous influence over our experiences for the better and and for the worse and if we look at this great study came out when i was writing the book um from a group led by a woman called alceline hoixmer in the netherlands and she's since published more research um after my book um has come out taking a look at how the mm. the, the brain changes in human women across the course of a first pregnancy so they get a lot of women in um and their, and their husbands and partners as well mm. and scan their brains before, when they're trying to fall pregnant and then immediately after a first pregnancy and then subsequent times afterwards. They don't want to put women in the MRI scanner unnecessarily during the pregnancy. And all of the women's brains showed the same structural changes across or after immediately after their pregnancy. And the really interesting thing was the parts of the brain that showed structural change were involved in social cognition and theory of mind and empathy. So, again, we've got yes. this largely exactly. biological signal, like being pregnant is a big deal to your body mm. and your brain and your mind. Yeah. Um, and actually the parts of your brain that change, are those involved with the outside and with that social connection with other people, which is utterly fascinating that Mother Nature doesn't just prepare our bodies Um, to carry the baby and to nurture the baby after it's born but it also prepares our brains and our minds for the act of mothering whereby we have have a a far greater skill set in terms of thinking what someone else is thinking and feeling and Mm. lots of women sort of experience this themselves through particularly in a first pregnancy it's almost for many women the first time in your life when you see the starving child on tv that used to be in a far country far away and suddenly you feel like your heart's been ripped out you've just developed this emotional empathy yeah. that you never really had before and that's yeah. just kind of mother nature's shortcut to ensure the survival of the baby which is is really cool and we think that comes about by these enormous hormonal shifts that we see during pregnancy and the main one being estrogen so we get a thousand fold dose of estrogen in one pregnancy yeah. a thousand times more in that one go Amazing. than we get the entire rest of our lifespan wow and in all of the mammals the female mammals of the animal kingdom that provides cognitive enhancement. But we are busy talking about baby brain. Mm. So what's going on there? You get a bunch of women into the research lab who are pregnant, and again, this is a reasonably well-studied area. Um, We we can even do meta-analyses on this. Most of the women aren't showing any cognitive shift whatsoever. Um, They're not scoring worse on tests. Their memory hasn't failed them, but lots of women say that it has which again for me as a kiwi was interesting because i've never heard about baby brain either i don't know what we talked about in new zealand growing up but (laughs) i never heard about baby (laughs) brain until well after my boys were born and i was like i'm I'm not getting enough sleep so i'm tired maybe that's why i'm forgetful or your attention is is really especially your first pregnancy it's such a big deal it's really hard to focus focus. because you're always thinking about what's happening in your belly and this little human you've got and here's another really interesting link which perhaps will enable us to carry on the conversation to menopause, is that you run hot yeah. when you're pregnant, one, because of some of the hormone shifts, but two, because you've got, especially in the final trimester, you've got another whole human inside you, and so yeah. you're really hot. And as soon as we see a subtle shift in core body temperature, sleep architecture gets disrupted, whether you notice it or not, and often we awaken yeah. up. We, you find it harder to fall asleep, and you wake up at night and you can't get back to sleep. And a large part of that is the physical discomfort, particularly in the third trimester. But a large part of that yeah. is this sort of shift in core body temperature. And as soon as you shift core body temperature, even by the tiniest amount, and even men experience this in a heat wave, young, fit, healthy men, it's too hot, you can't sleep. That's because core body temperature and sleep are really, really reliant on each other. Yeah. So yeah. that it may be, I'm a big believer in this, that a lot of these cognitive and emotional Shifts that we're seeing—the so-called baby brain—is the lack of sleep. It's not because the hormones mm. made us dumb. In fact, mm. the hormones—the hormones are working as hard as they can in the other direction. Mm. It is, you know, a combination of these other these other factors in play. Yeah,
2: that's amazing. Can I also ask Sarah? So you were talking about as we become mothers, we we crave that social interaction. We want. We we become almost like more. It's a requirement that we need. What, what do you think the effect of, you know, some mothers that are the solitary, they don't have that help, they don't have that network, they don't have that village, especially in the pandemic. I, I've heard of oh, so many mothers so being so stuck. And I just, I wonder what yeah, the effects yeah. of that would be, you know. You just
1: hope that they have been locked down with a supportive bloke or partner, whoever, um, you know, you, you 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 hope that the majority of them have had, you know, that you I suppose some part of it has to have been, you know, we have to have a bit of a mindset shift around that. And for years Mm. in many parts of the world still, you know, you stay cocooned at home, you know, in those first few months of baby's life. People kind of come in and help. And you hope for many women that they've been able to enable that with their partner or that they're lucky enough to have someone with them that can kind of provide that because essentially that's what's needed. The focus is on mum and baby and kind of cocooning um whereas we tend to think oh well, you know come on we get our you know yoga pants on and nice stroller and go out to mother's group and that's where the support okay. is yeah that's kind because of, that's kind of what we've been told you know mm. modern women do and need yeah. so you know we, we do need to sort of think about our expectations around that but certainly um i mean there's there's very very clear evidence that 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 support, the social support around women is a, is a massive indicator in terms of um, um, mental health issues. Yeah, and interestingly, interesting. some of the, again, of looking, I really like looking at longitudinal data, looking to see around rates of depression in and, and mothers. Certainly the Australian longitudinal data, looking at many thousands of women, <clears throat> there is this vulnerability in, in that first time after giving birth because it's an enormous <laughs> shock, <laughs> Um, especially your first birth is just like, gosh, it's an enormous big thing that happens to you. We all remember. Um, you're, everything, everything is changed. Um, and, and you're vulnerable, particularly early on. Um, but the rates of depression actually sort of are slightly higher in, in mothers who have children who are around ages three and four versus newborns, probably because part of the focus is on supporting the new new mums. But once you've been at it for like two, three, four years, you might have a couple more kids, you're just worn out. All Mm. these expectations you had about what kind of mother you would be, you've typically put well aside. And it's not really (laughs) living up to this dream that you thought for many of us that, you know, the day-to-day slog is really hard. And I know those, those preschool years were enormously tough. Interestingly, I say to my husband now, who works from home, he goes into the city one or two days a week now. Um, I said, "Oh, would it be nice if COVID had have happened before the boys started school? Because you would have been here all the time yeah. instead of coming <laughs> home at nine at night." So for me, it was an incredibly lonely time um, right. because you were just there with these little kids in the slog. Um, so you know, again, um, there's, all, there's, there's a lot there's a lot going on that can determine. Mm-hmm. A mother's experience there, and a large part of it again is the the social support networks that you have around you. Yeah, they fall yeah. down; everything can easily unravel from there. Yeah, that's time.
0: fascinating. Yeah, I think um, I think that's one of those kinds of times in life where a lot of pressure gets put on someone to. Like right now, the moment your child is born, you are a mother. But I think yeah. Yeah, you made a nice point in your book, which was, okay, the baby may have come along, but a mother is not a mother in that moment. You start to learn how to become a mother. Mm. So you have all these you know mixed emotions around, okay, well, no, there's no denying that I, you know, my kid is here, I love my child, but I'm not ready, uh, I'm not ready to take on responsibility, but there's actually no issues mm. with that whatsoever because your life is completely changed in a moment, but we're mm. only good at dealing with that by learning through mm. experience. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And and mm. by how the people showing us and teaching us and some people mm. pick it up really quickly and and some people struggle enormously. Um, and, and I think we're, you know, the the a lot of the support care systems i assume it's sort of run similarly in the uk is that there is a lot of there are a lot of support services of there the are. last year and a half has been so tough for so many people yeah. um but there are those kind of early years support services and they're important for the mum the parent whether they be mum or not any parent needs that but also the child needs that because the child needs to be cared for as well by, hmm. by people who are able to cope. Um, yeah. So one of, one of the, um, another, again, I keep going back to these wonderful longitudinal studies, the Dunedin study, and I refer to this a lot in the book, um, has, has followed, a, and I'm always slightly envious because these people grew up, were born in the mid-70s in Dunedin, I was born in the mid-70s just up the road in Christchurch, and they, yeah. they've been studied in great detail, there's just over a 1,000 of them across you know, the course of their lives, and they're now in their mid-40s, the Gen Xs. Um, yeah. and one of the one of the chaps heading up the research group is Richie Paulton um, okay. and he said to me when I was doing the research for the book we've underestimated the importance of childhood We kind of knowing it was important but their data shows how incredibly significant it is on on brain right. development on on psychosocial mm. health outcomes in your 40s early childhood and that's why we need to support mum we need to support yeah. parents so that that these little people that are born into, they have no choice what world they're born into, um, yeah. are given every opportunity possible.
0: Yeah. So I've, been, I've been coming across a little, other people saying the same sort of thing. There's, um, there's a researcher out in Canada, Richard Tremblay, or Richard Tremblay, who does, I think, like juvenile um, juvenile delinquency and stuff. He was researching and then he moved into aggression. And, then, and he said, they, people have asked, him okay, well, how do we stop... How do we stop? Um, I think his his particular research arm is uh, childhood aggression developing into you know, male delinquency, yeah, and uh, yeah. and going on that line. And then you ask him, is like, okay, well, how do we stop that from happening? He says we actually have to raise good mothers because it's when um, they are children that. Uh, like you know, the socioeconomic status, some of the things yeah. you've also pointed yeah. out in the book, like socioeconomic status, low education yeah. level, yeah. Um, means that it passes on to the kids and the kids end up yeah. having a worse outcome in life as yeah. well. So it's like, actually, if we start yeah. with the children, then we're creating much better outcomes. The only problem is, yeah. is we're looking at something now where the return on investment is 20, 30 years down the line and most people mm. don't like making an investment mm. in return uh, when it's further down the line like that. Mm. But, um, and we see yeah.
1: we that, and that's a, i mean i suppose you could call it a snowball effect and we see it mm-hmm. in positive ways as well whereby the people who are sort of in theory we might say thriving or flourishing in their mid-40s from the dunedin study are those that had the best the best start to life and whose parents probably also had the best mm-hmm. start to life and if you had a good start to life you should be i'm so the more i learn the more thankful i am to my mum and dad mm-hmm. for giving me this wonderful stable home and my husband's parents similarly for giving him a really wonderful stable home now we say to our kids you are so lucky that we were brought up by the parents we were brought up with because Ooh, we yeah. had such good start to life that we've uh, and we both came from I mean my parents both left school at 15 I'd never met anyone who'd been to university before but I was brought up I mean not with a lot of money and not with a lot of intellectual you know sort of educated family but I was brought up with so much love um, mm. and so much kindness and. You know that has just that. I mean, you don't you don't need the other things that set me up so well. And I think, oh, I'm Mm. so my boys are so lucky um, that they happen to be born into a a family where we can, you know, continue to kind of foster that. Um, And it's the kids that would fall through the cracks that we really need to pay attention to because they're still. You know, we can still do a lot. And I said to Richie, you know, if we focus so much on early childhood, what about the ones who didn't have the good start to life? Mm. And he said in typical mm. people style, you're asking me if they're screwed. And I said, well, maybe I am. And he said, well, sometimes you see these remarkable turnarounds um, mm. with people who you think that, that there might not be, you know, they might be screwed, as he said. Um, and it can just be the love, and it's typically the love of one other person. It might be, it might even be a therapist. It might be an auntie or an uncle who's come in or, yeah. or a teacher or a mentor, someone who has just yeah. swooped in at a certain point in time and often during adolescence um, yeah. who's just kind of provided that social support and that care and connection and attachment that they needed. And he said, we can see remarkable turnarounds but when one other person becomes involved in someone's life. So, you know, early childhood is so important, but there are other points in the life when we can intervene as well and, you know, pull people up. And, you know, you, we often, you know, you often hear these remarkable stories of that, and it certainly plays out in the research too. Sarah, yeah. so I was going to ask you just about
2: trauma and stress and the effects of mm-hmm. babies in the womb as well. Mm. And would there be an effect? For example say the mother was incredibly stressed there was trauma would it have an effect on the baby um and and can it be stored in their memory as well or yeah. in their body in some way
1: yeah that's uh, a really good question rest- and there's people who are, of course deeply interested in this um and there yeah. is research on this which is which is pretty and in- pretty good um mm. so i can speak mm. you know based on data yeah. um mm. and I think the first thing to point out is that when we talk about stress that can affect the baby, babies are pretty well protected, and the placenta is an amazing organ that buffers it, an awful lot of stuff. Um, Incredible. And normal levels of maternal angst and worrying, worrying if your baby's doing okay, worrying if you're going to be a good mum, and worrying if you're eating the right food, all that kind of level of, of psychological stress is fine. In fact, mothers who are slightly psychologically stressed about whether they're going to be good mothers are probably going to be more than enough good mothers Mm. Um, but we do have studies that have looked at extreme stress and extreme trauma and particularly not uh, particularly like like disaster type scenarios so some of the really interesting research that's been done in this space is looking at um, what's called the montreal ice storm study Um, so i I think that the the kids who were in, who were in utero at that time are probably in the early twenties now. So we're going back twenty odd years, and there was one of these ice storms that, that kind of hit that part of the world, whereby the rain rain freezes overnight and it collapsed the entire um, electrical grid in Montreal. Um, and it's really cold <laughs> there at that, that point yeah. in time. And a lot of yeah. people in the city had to be evacuated for quite some time. And there was a researcher there who was already looking at the effects of extreme stress on women who were pregnant. And so she was able to carry on studying those those women who had been evacuated from the city during their pregnancy and look to see in the outcomes in some of the kids. And there were some subtle outcomes, particularly emerging in early childhood, um, whereby a lot of the children's health and development indicators there were differences in the mothers who had experienced um, evacuation and found it really difficult. Yeah. And that was a big part of it as well. It's also your perception of how incredibly stressful and difficult this is. Maybe, you know, someone was able to swoop in and pick you up in a car and drive you away and you could go and live in, you know, your mum's house in another, in another province for a few months and be well looked after. That was perhaps different than someone who was evacuated into perhaps a, a school hall you know, there's there's different yeah. degrees there of the perceived degree of the perceived amount of stress. And mm-hmm. there were indicators that showed that the children's outcomes were, were impacted by by that. Interestingly, they did start to resolve as the kids went through. And part of that may be these kids were in a study, everyone knew that they'd been impacted, and so then interventions could be made. Yeah. Um, and they mm-hmm. these kids weren't like if, if they were showing um, indicators of early perhaps delayed development or learning problems or behavioural problems, they didn't just let these kids flounder.
2: Mm. They were able to then
1: intervene. And so once these kids were reaching teenagehood, they were pretty much, the differences had started to disappear. Maybe some of the girls might have entered puberty slightly younger, which we do see as a result of early, early stress, et cetera. But I think that shows that interventions also, also can help. Um, mm. And I believe similar studies have being done around women who are pregnant during, say, Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Um, I know many studies have been done looking at the Christchurch earthquake cohort, which, you know, my, my whole family and friendship group went through back in 2011. The whole mm. city basically fell down. And studies have been done looking to see children starting school, what are their behavioural and psychological outcomes based on early childhood stress. And, 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 and as a parent but it's, it's manageable.
2: Was there a difference between boys and girls or was it similar Um, within the trauma?
1: Interestingly, in utero stress and trauma, boys are slightly more vulnerable. Um, And and we understand, I mean, if we look at say neurodevelopmental disorders, um, boys are slightly more vulnerable and we're not entirely sure whether that's to do Mm. with the boys make up themselves. Um, the fact that they're genetically male or perhaps it's something to do with the genetically male placenta because placentas are a male or female because they basically come mm. you know they they you know they are part of that, that, that you know that's amazing fertilized gamete yeah they don't grow out of the mother they grow out of the fertilized egg. it's just amazing so you've got a male that? yeah you've got a male placenta or a female placenta and male placentas wow. may be slightly less um, resilient to buffering things that go on within the mother versus females. That's one theory that's out there. Mm. Um, so there was a slight, there is often in these studies a slight tendency towards boys being more affected by in utero stress and during and chi- childhood. So the yeah. earthquake crushed earthquake cohort, for example, there was not a lot of difference between boys and girls. However, once we get through to the teenage years, um, stress and trauma impacts girls more. Now, again, bottom-up, outside-and-top-down, what's going Mm. on? Why are teenage girls more vulnerable to developing anxiety after a traumatic event versus boys? Is it hormonal? That could be a little part of it. Is it perceptual? Is it the stories girls ruminate over and and ruminate Mm. together about, which girls do, more so than boys, who don't tend to talk about it as much? They'll have different ways of coping that may be learned. Um, Again, we don't know the answer. Because it's going to be multifactorial. Wow, mm. that's really
0: interesting. Yeah. Are there any theories, or is there any established reason why the male placenta is not as good at buffering against the female placenta? Because I just find yeah. it fascinating. I think it's incredible. Yeah. It's like there's a difference there.
2: Yeah, no, I'm
1: not. I haven't Amazing. looked at the, the research since I, I wrote that, but um, we're not entirely sure. But certainly, mm. I don't think most people realise that there's. The placenta's male or female as well. Um, that's incredible. You know, it, who, kno- who knows? But there's, that's one possibility. I'm not. I'm not right. sure what the latest is, is research sure. is saying on that one.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we'll take. Uh, we'll accelerate a few years into <laughs> menopause. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, oh, please. Because yeah. um, I yeah again a, a whole area which is probably like maybe the least understood out of out of the lot, and uh, especially by uh, regular folks um where Mm. would you begin to explain like you know what's actually going on with menopause and Mm. um how how we can better deal with it as 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 somebody who's going through it and people around the people who are going through it
1: yeah well first of all it's it's a reproductive transition it's a hormonal transition because your ovaries sort of winding down their duties and producing Mm. less estrogen and progesterone to and to to communicate with your brain but it's also a very largely a neurological transition Mm. and we know hormones are in constant communication with the brain and I and as I've said you know they're one signal that's coming in I like to think of them as a modulator you know you've got an old-fashioned radio and you can twiddle the volume and the bass and the balance and the treble Um, so they're just kind of tuning in and out to signals they're not like the sound coming out of the radio but they enable things to be twiddled a bit so we know that the hormones are in constant conversation with the brain during perimenopause, those years it could be 5, 10 years leading up to a woman's mm-hmm. final period which is her menopause. Then that con- that conversation that's been kind of going along for most of her lifespan since she hit puberty sort of starts to wind down and what we actually see is kind of rollercoastering levels of hormones. And it's these big fluctuations which are responsible for a lot of the symptoms that women experience. Now from the Brain perspective, the most well established we understand is, is is the hot flashes and the night sweats, which are these what we call thermoregulation issues. And there's a there's a pretty clear sort of biological pathway established, whereby we know hormones are involved with tweaking. You know, mm. a little knob on the radio again, tweaking your thermostat in a region of your brain called your hypothalamus. So, typically, when you get a bit when your body core body temperature rises. You, that sends signals to your body to start sweating or behaviors to start taking off clothes and if you get too cold you know you'll start shivering or you'll put more clothes on or you'll turn the heating on um during menopause the perimenopause the fluctuating hormones we think kind of narrow the thermostats the top level comes down the bottom level goes up so even the tiniest little shift your brain perceives as you're very 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 hot and so you are right. more likely to sweat you're far more likely to go red you're far more likely to we'll call it vasodilation or have this hot flashes which many women find uncontrollable so that's that and we and we know that it's it's, it's regulated by hormones because in women who choose to take hormone therapy hormone, mm. also known as hormone replacement therapy that's the best the best treatment we've got for hot flashes and hot flushes um also women who are you know kind of aerobically fitter we know that thermoregulation and aerobic fitness are also um, related so if you're you know you're kind of athletically fitter you may be more able to um, you know your thermostat might might not be as vulnerable to the hormones and there's some really interesting research which just come out um, recently in the UK I believe using cognitive behavioral therapies to help women manage oh, hot flashes and hot flashes which was done um, in women who are receiving cancer treatment um, which, again, the fluctuations in hormones can cause um, these these thermoregulation issues. And that doesn't necessarily reduce the number of them, but it reduced the, that distress women feel around that. Mm. Um, so, again, there's lots of kinds of ways in to look at that. Now, what I think perhaps um, is, is an underrecognized sort of domino effect of sorts, again, goes back to this, these changes in your core body temperature. You're kind of running a bit hotter your thermoregulation isn't as well managed if you're not on hormones and then what happens we've got sleep and we've got thermoregulation which have already said are very intimately related and dependent on each other and if you're running hotter your sleep architecture is disrupted the same thing happens in healthy fit young men if it's Mm -hmm. too hot outside sleep architecture is disrupted obviously women you know have experienced it no you know you wake up at night sweating they throw the covers off then they get cold so they put the covers back on and they get so sleep can be disrupted consciously yeah. or the architecture of sleep how much time you spend in deep sleep and rem sleep can be disrupted even if you're not realizing it um and what happens even if you lose one night's sleep you get you you you're forgetful you can't concentrate you feel foggy you're less yeah. well able to manage your emotions. Yeah. Have that happen for, for weeks and months and years, um, it's mm-hmm. very, very easy to start slipping into depression, anxiety, insomnia, because those are kind of cyclical, yeah. you know, almost cycles which which emerge. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that may be a large part of what is what is going on in, in, in many women in terms of symptomology.
2: I was going to ask you actually about that because a lot of my clients are either perimenopausal or going through the menopause mm. and they've gone to their doctors and the doctors are very, very young. They're not keen to test them. First of all, blood test them. And they, mm. they pretty much throw antidepressants at them. First of all, in sleeping tablets before mm. they'll give mm. them HRT. And I wonder yeah. why that is. I know, I know that obviously you mm. can suffer from depression. You can suffer from insomnia, but why not the investigation into and, and, and yeah. to willingly give them hrt when it it clearly yeah. is that
1: time of life yeah there's it's, some there's i mean i suppose different countries kind of lag or you know mm. speed ahead in terms of some of this understanding and i mean 20 years ago everyone was put on hrt or women were put on hrt and then we had the women's right. health studies that came out around 2002 2003 which scared everyone scared the gp scared the woman yeah because it, it seems to indicate that if you're on hrt your increased risk of cancer and heart disease and stroke and alzheimer's disease skyrocketed so about 50 percent of women globally stopped hrt and we haven't really sort of started with well, this whole generation of women has come through the system and a whole generation of doctors who are like well that's not an option um, right that causes disease but what we understand now is that that those studies have been done, you know, the, the data's been kind of segmented out and looked at a whole lot more detail. And it turned out that many of the women in those studies were started on HRT well after their menopause, so somewhere in their 60s, 70s or 80s when they were, had had hormones reintroduced back into a system that had essentially weaned off it. And we know when we do that, <clears throat> and the studies have been validated, this has been validated in animal studies, that when you do that, then you see the increased risk of all these diseases. But women who start taking hormone therapy in this window of opportunity, perhaps in their late 40s or early 50s, when their bodies haven't weaned off estrogen and they're very symptomatic, you know, they're dealing with all the hot flashes or the brain fog or the anxiety, then that's quite a safe time to start that. And we understand, and you know, the formulations used and the methods of delivery by sort of skin versus pill, et cetera, we're understanding a whole lot more now so we understand when the timing is important and the type mm-hmm. of formulation is important. Mm. Um, but but this is, you know, it's really only been perhaps in the last two or three years that um, we're starting to understand this. So, so a lot of the older um, GPs are lagging behind with that education. And I know there's campaigns in the UK at the moment to provide more CPD education to the medical community around this. There are some really good women's health specialists who are offering women this but also women aren't aren't kind of aware of it themselves there's there's this generation of women now here over here in australia i'm seeing and i'm in my mid-40s i'm seeing women a few years ahead of me certainly my friendship group being far more open so hormone therapy is a thing that's an option now and it's and people are far more open about discussing all of this than they even were 10 years ago so i'm seeing a real open-mindedness and willingness to try um, hormone therapy is an option if you haven't got other risk factors precluding that um, Then, you know, women I know who are 10 years older than me who are like, oh, I'm not taking that because it causes cancer. So there is a shift. Sometimes these shifts just take a while. But I know that there's a lot of work going on, and you can't believe I even read something. It was probably the debating menopause in the House of Commons yeah. or something. I was like, what are they actually – so we're going to debate menopause. I was like, What's the angle here? Like, <laughs> oh, half real or – um, so yeah. I, I think I think sometimes there's that there's that lag there, and I think you know we're we're growing up. So like you in your late forties. If you think you're simple, like you've got to um, show a bit of ownership over your own health. Sometimes when you go in, and and it's a partnership that you have with a healthcare provider. You're not a child anymore that telling you how to behave. Um, women who do have that awareness also, you know, have to go in and have those conversations yeah uh, if they are aware yeah. of themselves and i know there's a lot of good work being done i believe even in the uk there was a um a mccall did a recently doctor. around That's that awesome. so that conversation is sometimes the, you know it's coming um yeah. and i just encourage i mean you know was so how well prepared I are mean, when we go into a pregnancy so many of us you know we prepare our daughters entering oh, puberty. true yeah um when we we can't blame everyone else (laughs) all the time we do need to have it take a bit of ownership over that because there's some really good information out there and you're a grown-up going to your gp you're not a 13 year old naughty little girl um (laughs) you could you can go and have a really good conversation with someone if you go and kind of informed um Mm -hmm. i I believe as well so hopefully times are starting to change Yeah. yeah that's brilliant thank you great
0: and, it's, um, and if I remember some of the numbers from your book correctly as well, like twenty percent of women will go through some pretty extreme symptoms, sixty percent of women will have some symptoms, and twenty percent it, it might barely register. So yeah, it's, it's going to be quite a uh, it's going to be quite a individual thing yeah. for somebody to yeah. actually yeah. choose to go through this as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's either hushed up or not talking about. And older yeah. generations mm. of women are like, well, we got through it, so why do you need to talk about it? And and other women yeah. are like suffering and confused. Um, so I, I I just think all we can do is you know the more information and the education that's out there and the, and the awareness of the range of symptoms like pregnancy some women sail through pregnancy other mm. women are hospitalized you know because you know it's got such terrible morning sickness so um, you know there's there's and, the, and, and again you know hormones are kind of driving the the, the, the car here in a way but um, they're in the driver's seat but um you know the more well socially supported you are the more information you've got the more physically mm. well you are the better able you are to manage your sleep to not let those sleep disturbances run away into insomnia um mm. you know all of that um you know we've got to approach it y- using that 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 you know holistic model as well
0: mm. Great. and like across across the lifespan is like um, I like the way that you described it, which was windows of vulnerability. So you've talked about windows mm-hmm. of opportunity as well, but there's the windows of vulnerability, which is at puberty, uh, especially postpartum, and then during or perimenopause and menopause, mm-hmm. that uh, that's when women are more susceptible to mental health disorders. So, yeah. um, what do you think? Um, what kind of yeah? What do you think are the best ways to try and buffer against those? biological changes resulting in, mm. um, resulting in mental health uh, conditions.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, again, it's awareness, um, mm. having an understanding of what your normal is and what are the resources out there that you can use to, to pull on. And if someone isn't perhaps, doesn't have that agency or that ability to recognize it in themselves or to ask for help and lots of people, I mean, I'm hopeless at asking for help. Um is is for other people to, you know, provide that. Because often it's the social support that will then enable the other smart choices to be made. So just just an an awareness that these times of great change can be times of the emergence of wonderful wisdom and learning and new skills and new behaviours and can be really amazing. But they do... Often leave us vulnerable because a lot of these neurological shifts that the, the yeah. teenage brain is undergoing structural reorganization, so is the maternal brain, and so is the menopausal brain. And when that happens, things are you know can sometimes go wrong. So it's just mm. a, again awareness, education, and support, of course, key. Brilliant, yeah.
0: really. yeah, and I think, um, yeah, just key to understand that, um, if you it like it. That awareness piece is a big part of it, but also understanding that it's not something which is not supposed to happen. It's like in in that um, these changes that you go through, like you can create extra stress for yourself by thinking, Oh my God, these changes its (laughs) making this happen and you stress. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, it's awful maybe I shouldn't be thinking these things. Maybe I shouldn't be feeling this way, but actually it's like, it's a pretty normal thing and like going back to what you said about teenagers when, you know, they're moody, (laughs) it's actually brilliant. You know, this is developmentally normal. We want this to be kind of happening.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, it's going back to what we were saying at the very beginning of this conversation that that's certainly what science has offered me and i hope offers other people is the ability to sometimes to depersonalize and remove some of the shame and the personal storytelling from an experience and it it gives us the ability to step away from it and look at what is happening Um, and that gives us so many more options then to act um, if we understand what is going on versus thinking it's something in here and, and sort of drowning within our own mind trying to figure it out
0: yeah Definitely. and uh i know yeah time wise we're almost up uh, we're approaching a hard stop but um i wanted to squeeze in one little question mm-hmm. from okay. one of our listeners okay great so i want to squeeze in a question from one of our listeners so jenna thank you for submitting your question and she was curious about um imposter syndrome and why mm. there seems to be a difference between men and women if you have uh, any thoughts on that
1: yeah um, i'm Oh gosh i I do know someone who works in this space. I've had an is coming. I would have looked up what their research is. Um, I know plenty of men that have had imposter syndrome too. I'm not sure whether the ex- personal experience of it is more prevalent in men and women. And, again, there's probably a lot of things in play here. Women do tend to, girls with mergers during teenage years tend to ruminate and self-reflect and, and yeah. sort of wallow around in ideas in our own minds and there's a greater propensity for women to do that especially teenagers to do that versus men um i remember when i headed off to oxford i had imposter syndrome but when i talked about it you know a few years down the track when i would recovered everyone yeah. everyone i know had it like yeah. you go somewhere yeah. like that everyone thinks i'm not worthy how did i end up here they're going to find out and i think when you in certain environments foster it more than others I think lots of women do find themselves in perhaps in workplaces or environments where there's more men than women. Um, you know, someone I've been in speaking to a lot of women in STEM who have perhaps gone into, say, the, the so-called harder sciences, physics, engineering, maths. They may have often been the only female in the room. And so then that feeds into a lot of that imposter syndrome, whereas a lot of the men may not have had that because they had their kind of male tribe with them. Mm. um so again there's lots of things in play context is a, is a is a large is a large part of that um and then of course that propensity to often sort of rumination wallow around an idea in our mind is, is is something that girls and women have but um certainly i i've struggled with it and um the thing that you know i remember hearing Barack Obama saying he struggled with, and I thought, well, if he struggled with it, like everyone's <laughs> going to struggle with it, right? Yeah, it's yeah. A part of the, I, I believe it's kind of part of the human condition. And it's, again, it's a social cognition, which is what is everyone else thinking about me? Um, you know, there's that, the, the thoughts of the, the crowd out there, the so-called imaginary crowd. Um, mm. And, you know, what if they find out that I'm not worthy and is that, that's that kind of fear of non-approval of others that's a pretty human state mm. to be in. Um, yeah. So I and, and I'm kind of talking around this because I'm not particularly aware of the, the research on this, although I know it is there and I probably have not done it justice.
0: Sure. Well I've like simply I've heard like kind of conflicting things around it very much in line with the way you were talking about it as well. But um, yeah. um, tell us about uh, the Neuroscience Academy and uh, the Brain Coach Bootcamp and the purpose of yes. it and who it's for. Yeah,
1: oh, thank you. Um, so, well, I set the the, neuros- the Neuroscience Academy and the Brain Coach Bootcamp are a set uh, two online programs in Applied Science and Brain Health, which is, have identical curriculums. One is just slow paced and more relaxed. So we've got 17 lessons taught over 12 weeks in the, oh. in the Neuroscience Academy um but the brain coach boot camp is a boot camp so we smash those 17 lessons out over the course of two weeks wow. so, um, we, we release lessons daily um so the course is structured whereby there are some online video lectures with you know diagrams it's kind of very theoretical with some practical application ideas and then we have a, a zoom group call to kind of chat have a bit of a q a have a bit of a chat about how we can apply this or is there any new research which is relevant um and we, we kind of work our way through the basics of, of neuroscience, sort of starting off with the bottom up, outside, and top down model, looking at mm. neuroanatomy, physiology, cognition, emotion, get into aspects around kind of goal setting and reward and motivation that are really relevant for behavior change. Mm. Um, and then the, the, the kind of the last sort of third of the course is taking a look at these key indicators for brain health and mental well being around you know, nutrition and exercise and purpose Mm -hmm. and social connection. Um, So it's partly online um, learning-based, whereby there's there's quite short sort of 10, 15-minute video lectures to engage Mm in optional reading. And people come out of it with a certificate of applied neuroscience and brain health that they can then use as part of their Mm -hmm. professional development hours. So we're offering 35 Mm -hmm. hours all up now um and i have, have a lot of coaches come through for example um psychologists personal trainers therapists etc who are really mm. interested and enthusiastic about neuroscience and all it offers don't kind of know where to begin because it's an enormous <laughs> field yeah. and i sort take them through the because i think it's so important to build a really firm foundation and give people mm. that firm foundation so that they can then Go off and do some work or research of their own, and start integrating what they've learned in really thoughtful ways into the work that they do. Yeah. Sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah, oh. yeah for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah, I get some amazing, well, amazing, amazing people who've gone gone through the program. It's so, my next um, course, I promise oh, you. The next <laughs> one. I love it. We have, oh. Yeah, amazing conversations. There's also um, a wait. woman's a woman's um, a women's brain health and neurobiology course, which is kind of based on the, the book and the sort of lifespan approach to, we just sit around and it's mostly sort of conversation based, and just this great group of largely women talking about periods and pregnancy and menopause <laughs> from, from a neurobiological perspective. But that's right. some of the type of, um, again, professional yeah. development training. And really is. If you like it to hang out and have a bit of a chat and a book club style, <clears throat> talking about neuroscience books of course yeah that program as well which i i love it's fun and i get people in that there's a there's a quiz to sit the neuroscience academy which is just an administrative tick box but it does make people feel i've learned stuff and now i can't <laughs> my learning but for the women's brain course i get people to give a presentation on oh, how they've wow. taken what they've learned and the work they do and that is the best thing ever people have to give a five minute talk Almost like a mini mm. TED talk, um, which again people find challenging. But mm. oh, the the stuff people, the the work that people do that I get to work with blows my mind. They, I'm so humbled to be yeah. their teacher. It's it's, it's, it's really incredible. Sounds oh, fascinating. Oh, it's brilliant.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love the challenge of that as well. And mm. in the presentation at the end.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's good. I love yeah. it. <laughs> you just sit back and have a glass of wine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch. enjoy enjoy a ted yeah. talk <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah yeah,
0: that's great and how can people reach you sarah
1: yeah well so my website is dr sarah McKay.com. sarah with an h m c k a y.com and i've got you'll find links to the um, courses neuroscience academy brain coach boot camp etc through that and i spend a bit of time on instagram i've retired once again from twitter so you won't find me there it's a <laughs> right. negative mean wow. vibe i just i'm over wow. it i keep re-engaging and I'm like, i don't need that negativity mm. in my life anymore instagram's lovely you know i yeah. follow botanical yeah. artists and all the positive it's yeah. really positive yeah. sort of giving space and so that's where yeah. i kind of spend most of my time online if anyone wants to connect yeah. via social
0: yeah and that's at dr sarah mckay as well yes it is yeah Wonderful. It's been a great conversation. We really enjoyed having thank you on. Thank you for joining us nice. at 7am uh, oh. Sydney time.
1: Well, um, it really uh, is. Yeah, nearly nine now. We'll fa- I mean, yeah. honestly, thank you for the opportunity because it feels very self-indulgent That's to be nice able to just oh, chat with people who want to know what I think <laughs> um, about stuff mm. um, yeah. and to talk about neuroscience and be interested and engaged and um, doing the good work that great. you guys are doing as well. Like it's very um, heartwarming for me. So thank you.
0: No, thank you, I appreciate yeah. that. So if you enjoy it that much, we'll, we'll definitely do it again at some point, hopefully.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I ever write another book. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but uh, we ain't got time about that. So we'll do that offline. Um, we'll do that offline. <laughs> Yeah, sure. But uh, wonderful. So everybody else, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you learned a lot from it and um, tell us what you think about it as well, if you really enjoyed it and uh, jump on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Music or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, and um, subscribe to the show and uh, leave us a rating and review to tell us how much you enjoyed it. Thank you very much and we'll see you next time.